welcome to BrainCore, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I'm Tolu Ferramika, and I'm joined by my co-host, Christina Valcanis. So as you know, we're dedicating this December to clinical psychology and neuroscience. And on our last episode, we had on Christine, who works as a psychotherapist and social worker, and she shared with us the ins and outs of neurofeedback therapy. In this episode, we'll be looking more at the patient's perspective, but not just any patient, patients with schizophrenia. Our guest this episode is Isabel Butcher, a PhD student from the University of Manchester, and her PhD looks at the relationships between trauma, attachment, and negative symptoms. Isabel, welcome onto the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Thank you. So, We had on Ryan from the University of Waterloo a few episodes ago, and he's also a PhD student. And he did share with us that sometimes going through your PhD can feel lonely and you're not really sure if anyone out there has seen your work. So I think it's important to know someone is. So realizing that you were a PhD student when I found the article that you wrote felt like a plus for us. Would you say that those feelings resonate with you or how has the process been so far? Yes. So, um, yeah, I started my PhD in October 2016, and it was funded by the Medical Research Council, which, as you say, was to look at trauma attachment and schizophrenia or psychosis diagnoses. And so it was for four years, and I handed in and submitted last month. So, yes, the PhD is a bizarre process in that you're kind of lone working a lot of the time. And, um, yeah, I guess you have a supportive team with your advisors, but it's very much your work and it's a quite independent study. So, yeah, I enjoyed that because it gave you the autonomy to choose what you want to do and so, you know, use what measures you want to do. Um, and I guess at different points, you mentioned um, reaching out to other people with your research and sharing it. It is really, really hard to get it out there because to get a paper published can take a year or 18 months. So that's really hard and quite demoralizing at points. But actually sharing that at uh, as you go along with other colleagues or in research seminars at universities and things like that pre-covid you could do that face to face and I guess you could do it online now so that's been really helpful so yeah I think the PhD progress process is hard um it feels like a bit like a slog but I think it it is rewarding um definitely yeah right okay So we'll get into the paper now. It's called Understanding Individuals' Subjective Experiences of Negative Symptoms of Schizophrenia, a Qualitative Study. So it was published in the British Journal of Clinical Psychology earlier this year. And I did a little poll on my Instagram to see what mental disorders people wanted to know more about last month. And someone mentioned schizophrenia. So maybe before we dive in, Uh, You could talk briefly about the term of the episode or tote, schizophrenia. Can you tell us what it is and what the onset is like? Yeah, so a a diagnosis of schizophrenia comprises of two two symptoms, two types of symptoms, and they are positive symptoms and negative symptoms. So the positive symptoms of schizophrenia are those things that perhaps you and I do not experience. So command hallucinations, um, delusions and things, and auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, all of those things that you and I perhaps do not experience. And the negative symptoms that make up a diagnosis of schizophrenia are those things that you and I have but they perhaps lack, such as a lack of motivation, withdrawal, um, 
blunted affect, apathy, anhedonia, all those things. And there's two symptoms. Those positive and negative symptoms make up a diagnosis <clears throat> of schizophrenia. So that is schizophrenia in a nutshell. And so schizophrenia, the, the etiology, etiology of it is really unknown. I mean, some people think it's a very genetical thing and there is genetics maybe suggesting that there is a, a, a gene behind it. But actually, a lot of the research to date and my research would fit in with a biopsychosocial model, which is the idea that it's, it's perhaps affected by and impacted by the environment in which we grow up and the life experiences in which we have. And so my whole PhD was focused on these, as you said, the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, and the reason for focusing on the negative symptoms of schizophrenia is they're under-researched. There's very, very little research on negative symptoms, but there is an abundance of research on voices and, and things like that and, and the positive symptoms. My reason that I think there is probably more research on positive symptoms is speculation, but I do think it is because um, positive symptoms, when they present in an individual, they present as very distressing, um, as requiring immediate attention, they're urgent, whereas negative symptoms are those things that perhaps go unnoticed because the individual is quietly experiencing them, such as emotional, social withdrawal. So actually, you know, they get forgotten about when you go to the GP or the psychiatrist doesn't see those. Whereas if somebody is, is acutely unwell with experiencing positive psychotic symptoms such as command hallucinations, that presents as, as requiring emergent emergency um, treatment and medication. So that that's that's the PhD. Um, talking about this paper, so this paper is the second paper in the PhD. There's three papers in the PhD. And this was a second one. And it, as you say, it was a qualitative study looking at individual subjective experiences of negative symptoms. Um, and so I guess the paper prior to this in the PhD was looking at the relationship between trauma and negative symptoms. And so that was a systematic review, which was, I guess it was a paper which aimed to understand, is there an association between traumatic life events and negative symptoms? Um, so, yeah, the comparison that paper found that there was there was some hint at suggestion between trauma and negative symptoms perhaps a suggestion at emotional neglect and negative symptoms but otherwise there was very little robust evidence to prove if you like for want of a better word the link between positive, uh, negative symptoms and trauma which is very unlike the literature today on positive symptoms and uh, traumatic life events because we know from the literature there's an abundance of research showing that if you, if you experience trauma, bullying, etc., adverse life events, you will uh, you're at greater risk of developing positive psychotic symptoms. So going on to this paper, as you said, I'll keep on track here. This was a paper which was done on yep individual subjective experience of negative symptoms because to date there was one, only one other paper that had looked at negative symptoms. So I decided that we should look at negative symptoms from a qualitative point of view. So qualitative being that it was an interview using a semi-structured guide. And what that did was that we, we wanted to see how well, the question was, how do individuals experience negative symptoms? So it was very, very open. And, and that was that was the reason why, to understand how they experience this and just to see what would what would happen if we asked them. So we are, I asked 20 people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia from across the UK. So some of them were in hospitals like rehabilitation and recovery units, some were in maybe forensic settings, and some individuals were living in the community. And we got 17 
17 males, I think, 17 males and three females from memory. And so that was that was reflective of the sample, the prevalence of schizophrenia, particularly in the UK, which, which is more prevalent in men and um, white British men. So that and we had a range of, of ethnicities, but the majority were, were white British, um, which is a reflection again of the, the rates of schizophrenia. So we constructed this interview guide based on the literature and what it was, it was just to understand how individuals experience negative symptoms, as I said. So we just basically gave them a little preamble, preamble at the beginning. We said, well, what is it like to experience, you know, a lack of motivation, not being able to get up and all of those things? And one by one, they answered these questions, you know. And so the interviews were about an hour long each. And then that, in it, doing all these interviews, we were then able to sort of construct um, and apply thematic analysis to this to understand what 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 was coming out of the research. It was very much directed by what the, the participants said. And it was an inductive approach to understand the participants' voice in negative symptoms. And so as the paper found, is that there was two main, main themes that emerged from the paper. And these two themes were, what is it like to experience negative symptoms? And where have my negative symptoms come from? So under the main theme, which was, what is it like to experience negative symptoms? That Within that, there was different themes such as loss of concentration, loss of motivation, withdrawal. And then this really interesting theme emerged within that main theme called feeling but not feeling. And this was this inability to feel, but they could feel. So anecdotally, research suggests that people, individuals with negative symptoms, they don't feel, they can't articulate the feelings. And that was not what we found in our research. The research was showing that they can articulate their feelings if they're asked. And actually, they can feel, but they feel numb. And actually, to feel numb is still a feeling, but it's not a feeling. And I think that was really critical that we, we honed in on that. And we found that they actually, you know, just feeling numb is, is still a feeling. Like in life, we can't just not feel something, if that makes sense. So that's what really emerged from that. And then within that second thing, was really interesting again because we didn't really know what was going to happen at all, as I said, with the research questions. But they, they individuals without prompting suggested and hinted at what they thought had caused these things to emerge, which was really fascinating. So they perceived them as being related to trauma in their life, positive symptoms. So they thought that perhaps some of them thought that the voices had led to these negative symptoms. For example, one individual felt that voices are so debilitating and exhausting that just that just saps all her energy and she can't do anything else. The impact of a social network is a positive thing. You know, people mentioned if I have a child, I have to get up. So therefore, I can't just, I'm forced to get up and engage with the day. And then other people, interestingly enough, noted that it was the recreational and the prescribed drug use that was affecting it. So quite a few individuals felt that, you know, it was perhaps that they'd smoked a lot of cannabis in the past. And that was leading to these, these negative symptoms they're experiencing now. And then other people felt that it was the antipsychotic medication that they were being prescribed that was causing these, these symptoms. So that was really, really fascinating because the literature does say that there is some overlap between negative symptoms, medication and, and the experience of them. So that was really fascinating. That whole second theme was. And I think the reason why the second theme was so fascinating was because you know, that is what the literature is saying. It's like, you know, it's saying that trauma is linked to, to schizo a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So for them to say that was quite interesting. 
but also it was interesting because obviously we can't because it's a uh, qualitative study we can't impose causality on any of those things that is just their opinion and, and that it is what it is but I think it is interesting to know how they um they you know attribute certain symptoms to, to what they've done so I thought that was really really interesting yeah uh, for sure yeah. for sure I've gone for too long so you carry on yeah no I was just gonna say that the whole fact that you were able to talk to people about their own subjective experiences with a disorder is something that for my whole time that I was doing research in my undergrad I was actually in a lab where we were developing a dosing regimen for an amphetamine model of schizophrenia. And I was a blind reader, so I didn't know what dose my rats got. But from working with them, you kind of know what dose they got just by the symptoms they show. Mm. And anyway, the whole time when I was training them and testing them on all the tasks, we had to do like sucrose preference tests for anhedonia, social interaction tasks. I was trying to like I kept wondering like wouldn't this be easier if I could just talk to them like Dr. Doolittle or something but today when I read your paper I was like yeah we can do this we can talk to the people and I think it's so important in the field of psychology and neuroscience too to just look and get to the bottom of the disorder by speaking with the patients because sometimes I think people get lost in like the molecular and kind of sciencey side of it and they're stuck in the textbook. But I just wanted to ask you what pushed you to dive into what some people may think is so simple and just actually explore the subjective narrative recounts from patients. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have no experience in experimental psychology in terms of any, I didn't have any, I mean, any of any rat modelling of schizophrenia at all. So my research predominantly is all been with people. And I think I felt that if I was to go and do a next study, which is the next study in the paper, I can talk about later. But anyway, that was that, I felt that I cannot get people or rate people on negative symptoms if I do not understand what it is like to experience negative symptoms I mean I could do all these rated you know assessments on them but I need to know if I'm going to understand them what it is actually like to experience them so that's where it came from and that's and I I've always felt that they have a voice in all of this but the literature again would suggest that actually they cannot articulate their experiences because they're so they're lacking so much motivation so I guess that wasn't the case but maybe because these individuals were not at the um they were not acutely chronically unwell with negative symptoms that they were able to voice their opinion um but I think yeah I think I I don't know anything about rat models of schizophrenia but I mean I think I think maybe they these you can't I know the rats don't you can't ask them their feelings but I feel like Mm -hmm. there would be overlap between the two and I think um yeah, the experience of apathy, anhedonia that they describe, I guess, could be implemented and you would see that in an animal model. Yeah, right. for sure. <clears throat> so in the paper, um, in the methods, as you already mentioned, you used the quality of interviews. So what was it like to administer? Was there like a level of standardization or was it more flexible where you could use your discretion? Yeah, so we had a topic. So the topic guide was used, um, and depending on how the interview was going, it was kind of adapted there and then. Um, and it was so we 
agreed that it would be an iterative process in that actually sometimes some of the individuals needed a lot of prompting and um you know um, um, signposting as to what i was trying to ask them because it was such a broad question others of them, others of them didn't need any of that and were quite happy to speak on their own almost like a monologue for an hour um and so it was it was very much dependent and flexible and i think that was just the nature of it because it was such a you know the only thing i wanted to know was what is it like to experience them and so, so that was that was really key. But it was also key to note that I described the negative symptoms for them all at the very, very beginning, so they knew what I was talking about. Because actually, for them, they don't tend to, when well, none of the twenty I interviewed, know what the difference between a positive and negative symptom is. And I guess why would they? Because as one patient said to me, "But Isabel, they're all negative." So actually, I think you know, it's as researchers we would know it's a positive and a negative symptom, but they would just see them all as one. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to say, you know, for example, when we looked at when we asked them about blunted affect in the interview guide, we said, you know, some people get really excited about a friend's wedding and their facial expression gets excited too and it changes. And what how would, would you experience that? And of course some of them would say, No, it doesn't change, and then it expands. So I think it was really key to kind of try and tease out that information where possible. Um, to ensure that we were actually looking and asking about the negative symptoms rather than the voices. Um, so, yeah, that was really important. And there were a few instances where the individuals were quite acutely unwell with positive symptoms, so sometimes the interview had to be kept really on track to ensure that we weren't asking about positive symptoms, but it was definitely the negative symptoms. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you t- you talked about how it could be difficult with people needing prompting and knowing exactly what they were supposed to talk about, like yeah. what's a negative symptom, what's a positive symptom. Did you find that it was hard to get them to share their stories with you because it's hard to open up to a stranger on a deeper level? Or did you have like any strategies to get them comfortable to talk to you? Um, yeah, so most of yeah, it's a very good question. So the, most of the interviews, I feel like most of them were done in their own settings. I mean, none of them had to come and go anywhere. In fact, they all did it in their own environment, whether that was their hospital meeting room or whether it was in their own living room, I guess, at home. And I think I think one of the key things is just to make them feel comfortable. And I think because I didn't have a hidden agenda, I think the only thing I wanted to know is what is it like? And actually often as clinicians, and I and other medical professionals, they're not often asked by those people, what is it like to experience them? Because often they're asked that, but it's in conjunction with, well, should we increase your medication or more therapy or less therapy? And so actually for someone just to say it with no hidden agenda like myself, completely independent to them and their care, I wasn't going to affect it. I think maybe in a way it's funny because you think that would make them not want to open up to me, but I think it probably helped because they, they knew I had nothing there was nothing, I wasn't going to affect their level of care. Yeah, no, for sure. I totally understand that. I actually volunteer at a shelter and a lot of our clients that come in are struggling with mental health disorders like this. And one of the number one thing is just you don't want when they when you talk to them, you don't want them to think you have a hidden agenda or yeah. they can't trust you because otherwise they're not going to want to talk to you. They uh-huh. come in to not be judged. Yeah. But you also mentioned that um, at the beginning when you prompted them with what positive and negative symptoms were, I was just wondering, do you ever think that through that they might have been answering questions 
to kind of in the way that they think you want them? Do you think there was any participant bias in the interviews? I think I think there's always going to be participant bias in the interviews. I do. Um, uh, we had to give them that at the very beginning, and I, I know it does seem like, what well, did we leave them to say that? But I think otherwise it would have been very hard to ask them to tap into those experiences at all because I'm not quite sure how else we would have said what, what do you experience, you know, it, it would have been very hard. And I think it's at a level playing field because they all had that information. So therefore they were all on the same page. But I agree. I mean, they might have refrained from telling me some things or embellished upon others and, you know, because they didn't. But I think it is what it is in research. And I think that's what we found. And I think I'd be tempted to say, actually, you know, they might have divulged something completely different to another researcher asking the questions. But, I mean, I don't think the level of detail they provided would, would, would suggest that they, they, were, they were true accounts. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Yeah. And the fact you even say that, like, you know, everyone was given the, I guess, prompts the same way. Yeah. Um, and that kind of like, I guess, wipes out participant bias because everyone is just responding in the way they'd like to respond. But yeah, so in the results, um, that was also paired with testimonials and that made for an interesting read. Uh, I just want to touch on the main themes and a few of the sub themes. So the main theme was what it was like to experience negative symptoms yeah. and the sub theme themes you mentioned were loss of concentration, loss of motivation, withdrawal, and feeling but not feeling. Did you find that it was common for patients who mention um, loss of concentration to also mention memory issues? Because like, I'm just wondering if you're not able to remember or encode information, um, it would come, it would stem from like this, I guess, problem of focusing or concentrating yeah that's a really interesting question I mean I, I guess no I, I didn't really tend I don't think any actually thinking reflection now memory memory issues actually came up at all which is interesting because actually lots of antipsychotic medication would suggest does lead to a, a slight memory loss or especially if they right. you know ECT in the past therapy which is still ongoing in the UK so I suppose that would lead to memory loss but they didn't really seem to to that didn't come up as a, as, an, as a theme which is interesting because I suppose you could think maybe they they have an inability to remember pleasurable events thus that then that would then um lead to them not having a, any expectant expectancy of pleasure and that for therefore would feed a negative symptom cycle perhaps but I don't know because they they didn't express this memory loss so I'm not sure that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you said ECT therapy, what, electroconvulsive therapy? Electroconvulsive therapy. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still ongoing in the States, but it is over here. Um, and of course, that would. Um, so basically, I think it's where small electric currents are passed through the brain, which basically triggers a brief seizure, a seizure in an individual. Yeah, I'm not sure if we still do it, but I know that mm. not short, like a few short, not too long ago they were doing it because my grandmother's brother was going for ECT. Yeah, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. that would lead to that. And over time, because you would have that on like a four week cycle and that would lead to to memory loss because it's often done under it's done under general under general anesthetic and also yeah. because it's constantly you're basically triggering a seizure yeah mm-hmm. right um control for that i wouldn't be able to tell you how which would be an interesting point again to know how many of these 20 individuals had ect and how many didn't i do right because that could have been a factor as well absolutely yeah so i just want to read one of the testimonies from the loss of motivation section So participant 1018 said, brushing teeth felt like climbing the biggest mountain and I just couldn't be bothered to no motivation ever. Was this surprising for you to hear at all? Yeah, because I I think I think I had naively perhaps. um, So prior to my PhD, I worked in an inpatient rehabilitation recovery unit in the UK and lots of the individuals there they were an all male and lots of them were experiencing negative symptoms I guess that's where it all stemmed from but anyway yes that did surprise me because I think I naively perceived negative symptoms to perhaps be an element of laziness and for someone to say that you begin to think actually there's more to this whole symptom construct than Mm -hmm. lazy like laziness um and to to articulate it in that way was quite impressive I thought and I think that taps into the idea that you know people with individuals with negative symptoms can actually articulate how they feel um and yeah and that that you know yes they might not be able to to function as well as everybody else within society but there is an element of understanding and ability to to um voice uh, their concern yeah and you you talk about society and social connectivity in the paper too and this was actually something we touched on in our third episode on the podcast with dr cassio we looked into the pandemic's impact on the connections we have with others and i was just wondering for someone that maybe already feels better on their own because a lot of these patients were saying you know, they'd rather be alone. They don't have the energy or motivation to connect with others. Do you think that maybe society's shift in from expecting people to go out and do things to now encouraging people to stay home with the pandemic might come as a relief? Yeah, for that, for these individuals, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think perhaps for these individuals because that's what all they know. But I think it's important to know that with negative symptoms, you can. It's it's all it is about those things. There's lots of things, but it's also more recently researchers are thinking and considering the ability to anticipate pleasure and remember pleasure. Mm-hmm. So when I say pleasure, it's in enjoyment, but it's so it's the ability to remember a pleasurable event, e.g. remember playing football with a friend, and then the ability to anticipate that. And actually the two go hand in hand. So actually it's it's important to ask people, did you because actually if they didn't it, enjoy it and remember it as being enjoyable pleasurable then they're not going to anticipate pleasure from it again and therefore might just avoid that so social activity why bother yeah yeah so they have to like prime themselves and focus it's mindset too i guess focus on the good instead of the negative i get i'm pretty sure they talk yeah. about that too yeah. in depression yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, and well, there is a link between depression and negative symptoms, but I think it's important that they, you know, the ability to remember pleasure will then be like, well, I last really enjoyed that game, so actually I'm going to go out and play it again now, and I think that's really important. 
So with symptoms, you've got the experiential deficit. So that's the, the loss, the you know, the lack of being able to enjoy activities. But you've also got the expressive deficit. So the inability, the fa- lack of facial expression, you know, all of those things. Facially, you've got those two components as well. Yeah, I think in one of the testimonies, someone said like facial expressions. Like I don't have yeah. facial expressions yeah. or something like that. Yeah, so that's really interesting because actually, is, you know, we take it for granted, don't we, that our change, our face changes with with the reactions and the emotions we're experiencing. But for some yeah. people, they just they literally would tell you anything, and it would just be with the straightest face. And so that's that's quite hard. It's almost like a bit a bit similar to what uh, the catatonia catatonic patients were back mm-hmm. forty odd years ago. But yeah. Very, very strange, very hard. So with the findings of this paper, I think this was mentioned briefly in the discussion. Um, what do you think can be done to make treatment regimens more personalized, like enough to address how the patients subjectively feel? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to go back as clinicians and researchers and actually ask them about their history. Because actually at the minute, I don't know about in the States, but we're not doing anything um, such as mainstream in clinical settings, asking them what they've gone through in their life. And it, if not the whiffs, we don't wouldn't want to find a trauma, but we just want to know a bit more about that individual. And then that might lead to more discussion about these symptoms and like, you know, the, the, what are they led to, like the inability to go out. And, and then, then we can um, target those in a psychological way, I suppose, and how we can regain enjoyment from activities that are no longer enjoyable so that would be and also i think this paper is really interesting because it shows to others who perhaps are in the same area or caring for somebody with a diagnosis of schizophrenia that individuals with schizophrenia um can articulate how they feel and i think that's really really key because i think we sometimes forget that they look a bit disheveled they're sitting on the step that you know engaging with voices and actually but they can actually have proper conversation at some level yeah it goes back to the all the stigma surrounding mental health and then knowing their history too just reflects on how you mentioned you're looking at the biopsychosocial model for Mm -hmm. schizophrenia as well it's important to have a holistic view of somebody Mm -hmm. um but you also mentioned earlier that you have a plan to follow up this study and since we're coming to the end of our time together would you be willing to give us a bit of a sneak peek into your next steps for your PhD research? So, uh, so now I've finished the PhD and that's all done. But actually, the, yeah, the follow paper from this one, which is in the PhD, was um, a cross-sectional study and a longitudinal study over six months looking at the association between traumatic life events adult attachment style and negative symptoms. So what as a research team we wanted to know was whether there's a link between the experience of trauma um, uh, across the lifespan. So that was non-intentional and intentional trauma. So that could be the death of a parent or childhood sexual abuse. Um, and the association with that attachment style and negative symptoms. And so we were really interested in that because, of course, the systematic review, the first study of this of this, had revealed that perhaps there's an association between emotional neglect and negative symptoms. Um, but what we found in that paper, the third paper, if you like, was that there was no association between traumatic life events, attachment style and negative symptoms. Um, so that was a bit of a surprising finding, really, given on the literature. But it did tie in with the results from the systematic review um, in that there seems to be, you know, there was no association between these three constructs. That actually, even though it was a null finding, which I know 
we don't have to talk about in science, but is interesting in itself because it suggests that actually this area of research warrants further research. Because if there's no association with trauma, trauma and negative symptoms and attachment style, what else may help or mediate or moderate that association? And also, the study was a cross-sectional study, so they they did trauma and was measured at baseline but it wasn't an attachment style was but we didn't reassess them that six months later so that would have been interesting to see um, and negative symptoms didn't appear to change it they were pretty much stable over six months and, and that's surprising compared to other research studies but that could be because all these individuals had a diagnosis of schizophrenia and were quite chronic um, in that they weren't experiencing first episode psychosis so what would be a really good study to do next would be um, outside of the PhD I suppose would be to do a study where you uh, longitudinally follow people up um, who are currently experiencing first episode psychosis so very initial stages and then into you know into a year a year or 18 months later and to see how their symptoms change because at a first episode psychosis in the prodromal phase they call it stage that that's where negative symptoms are really 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 prominent and then what happens is that they then become eclipsed or overshadowed by these positive symptoms and 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 then sort of the neck but the negative symptoms like hang on and they almost leave like a bit of residue and they they maintain while the negative while the positive symptoms are targeted with the antipsychotic so that means that the negative symptoms are still really, really pervasive and they just don't go away. So that would be a really good study, a big longitudinal study looking at uh, negative symptoms and trauma over time. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Okay. Yeah, there's recent research has also suggested um, uh, from Yale that actually what we need to be doing is looking at specific life events at specific life at times in life. So actually the notion that um, as a sensitive period, whereas every, any trauma experience between an, a certain age may lead to greater psychopathology later on in life than it being experienced trauma or, you know, uh, earlier on or whatever. So actually, you know, I think we need to consider the, the uh, timing of environmental adversities and, and, and the impact of that on mental health in later life. Of course, it goes back to the whole genes in the environment and the interaction and how some people might have the predisposition for it but there's never an environmental trigger I, th I think it could be you could you could I think I feel you know it is life experiences because I think they shape us all but I think it's you know uh, not everybody who's experienced childhood sexual abuse for example will go on to develop negative symptoms or even psychosis mm -hmm. so actually it's, it's actually knowing and I guess tapping into what it is that um what it is that, that almost buffers that what what prevents somebody from getting from receiving a diagnosis of schizophrenia later on in life because if we know that then then we can mitigate against negative symptoms yeah so, yeah that yeah. would be like looking into the specific or the specifics of that uh, traumatic event to figure out what differentiates it um, from the other. Yes, that would be too. Yeah, and the the age at which that event happened, right. perhaps the the relationship that who the event was by, like who was the perpetrator and the you know that might have an impact. 
Um, yeah, but it would be have to be kind of a quite a big longitudinal study over time because there's so many, as you say, so many different you know individual differences that might account for that. You know, you could argue are some people just naturally more resilient than other people, or you know, you know what I mean. So I think we you need to consider all those different factors. Yeah, I have a little anecdote on all that too because I think people notice that in the environment or people that are close with people with schizophrenia might be aware of these triggering factors. One time I was in a taxi and the taxi driver asked me because we were just talking and he was like, oh, you do neuroscience. So they automatically think maybe you'll have the answers they need. And he asked me um, if weed can promote schizophrenia because he apparently had had a, a lot of friends that would smoke weed and all of a sudden something just switched off and I was like I I can't answer that for sure for you but I know there is some evidence yeah that makes this happen you know I I think we have to then also be careful then when we go and talk about cannabis because actually you know we don't it's a bit like a chicken and egg scenario so you've experienced trauma and then you take cannabis which might Mm -hmm. lead psychosis so that's drug-induced psychosis recreational drug-induced psychosis but then you could argue it might happen the other way that you might just you might just smoke cannabis and then that might then lead to the psychosis so, so it's, it's not it's knowing what causes what you know what came first the trauma or the or the cannabis um and that's quite hard to disentangle sometimes i think yeah definitely but yeah. Your future steps sound really interesting and really cool. And I hope people check out more of your papers. So I just want to take the time to thank you for sharing and thank you for coming. I know. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I think this is the largest time difference we've had to plan around (laughs) like five hours. Um, So we're grateful you found the time to come on. Um, this will be released closer to the holidays. And so I hope exams are over for students. Um, if you want a movie to watch over the break that gives more insight into dramatized schizophrenia, um, check out A Beautiful Mind. It's actually based on a true story of a mathematician who started to experience both the positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia in the middle of his life. Um, the book is a less is a bit less dramatized if you want to invest in it, um, and they are not sponsors. I just watch a lot of movies and read often, so perhaps there will be more recommendations in the future. Um, Isabel's article will be in the bio if you'd like to give it a read. I suggest it. Um, there are participant testimonies in there that truly depict how they're feeling as they answer the questions. And feel free to share your thoughts on this episode with us. Our email is thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at thebraincorepodcast and on Twitter at thebraincorepod. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating or a comment allows us to reach a wider audience. So if you can, please do so. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you're having a great brain day. 